Welcome to the latest edition of Hidden Tracks, Stories from BART. I'm Jim Allison. On September 11, 2023, BART began to run only new cars for the base schedule, truly a history-making milestone for BART. All 55 trains in service are made up of new cars, what we call the fleet of the future. So it's my pleasure today to speak with John Garnham, the group manager of the Rail Vehicle Capital Program. John, I think that's your official title, but I like to think of you as the honcho of the fleet of the future. How long have you worked on the program to bring these new cars to BART? Well, we started this program in 2012, so it's been 11 years Okay. Uh, in development. And so 11 years in now, what's the latest on the delivery schedule? How many cars do we have in service? How many do we have on our facilities? And how many more can we expect? So we have 611 in, in service, and we have uh, 627 on site. They come As in every today. day, so it's hard, hard yeah. to keep up with it. They've been giving us 20 a month. Wow. So pretty much one a day or five a week is usually what they what we deliver uh, or what they deliver over to us, and then we put into service. Mm-hmm. And I remember back um, a couple of years ago, you had told the board that – the uh, delivery schedule would ramp up, and in fact, it has now. It has, it has, and they've, they've, you know, they have some issues with suppliers, but they've managed it very well. So, to make twenty a month for the last six months is uh, is pretty pretty remarkable. Okay, so describe the journey of a car uh, when you have, um, say, a blueprint. How does it end up getting here on, uh, you know, bar facilities? What what is the process? Where is it built? Well, it actually starts with the with the s- developing the specification. Right, and that started in you know twenty uh, two thousand and eight or something somewhere around in that time frame, but then the suppliers awarded this the uh, contract, and then it's it's a three or four year design effort. Um, we spent a lot of time in Montreal, and they spent a lot of time here, uh, understanding our facilities, doing testing, testing you know different uh, pieces, the car body for example. We had to test. Uh, there was this collapsible unit that we had to test. We tested it first, and then we put it onto the end of a car, and we tested that. And then we put a whole car body together, and, and we crashed that just to make sure that we knew what the uh, where the energy went during a crash. So there's a series of buildups. You start with the with the drawing, and then you have a, a, a part, and then you have an assembly, and then you have a car. And uh, from there, it went down to Sahagún, Mexico. That's where they build the shell. They have a very large facility down there. And uh, they build the shell complete. Um, They ship it to Plattsburgh. And uh, Plattsburgh does the final assembly. They put in all the air conditioning, the propulsion. They build the uh, trucks there, the wheel assemblies. We call them trucks. You know, they're powered. They have their motors on them. The trucks are axles with the wheels. That's correct. They're they're a big structure on on each end of the car with... Mm -hmm. uh, two axles and two motors and two sets of brakes. Um, so they put those on, and then they put them on a truck, and they uh, ship them to our test track where the final testing is done. Okay, so you mentioned in Mexico they, they build the shell. The shells are aluminum. Correct. And uh, I understand it's kind of an interesting process to take that aluminum, um, you know, which is a metal that we're all familiar with, and make it into the outside of a barred car. How's that work? They actually, it's aluminum extrusions. So an extrusion is like I don't know if you, you had kids. You have play doh and you put it in this thing and you push the handle down and this little 
tube comes yeah. out or a round thing comes yeah. out or a star, star comes out. Yeah. That's an extrusion. Uh-huh. Except they do it with metal, and they, but they, you know, same kind of process. They force it through a die, uh-huh. and they have these 70-foot extrusions that they weld together for the floor, and they do the same for the, for the ceiling. And then they actually build the floor up and the ceiling up, uh, you know, before they put it together. And they, and they do the same with the side walls. They, they weld those all up and build them together. So they put in, you know, insulation. They put wiring. They put lights on. Everything's together. And then they take it to this area where they call it the splay station. And they put the floor down. And they put the uh, side walls down. And they put the roof on top. And they have a special bolt called a huck bolt. It's a big, it's a rivet, but it, but it, you know, it explodes at a certain force, so you know what the forces are and how, how. What kind? Of, what's it called? It's called a huck bolt. Huck bolt. But it's a, it's a type of rivet, basically. That, okay. you know, it's, it's an engineered rivet. Mm-hmm. So you want it a specific length, and and it, you know, holds a specific pressure. So they, they huck the car together, and and. Uh, then they then it sent it down the line where they put the windows in. They do a water test. Um, they put some end cabinets in and, and some additional wiring, and then they uh, put the doors on, and then they ship it over for final assembly. They huck it together. That's a good verb. Okay. So uh, you have the process finished in Mexico. How does it get to Plattsburgh, which is in upstate New York? It's trucked. Okay. So it's put on a truck. So. I think they have 27 or 28 trucks on the road at any given time. Wow. Between, you know, uh, taking, you know, they take one a day up to Plattsburgh, and they take one a day to to BART, and then they run that trailer back down to Mexico and fill it up again. Those are some uh, long-haul truck drivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they get their, uh, they get their uh, work. And what happens in Plattsburgh, New York? So in Plattsburgh, they take all the subsystems, like the propulsion, everything under the car, um, the propulsion, the H, uh, the air conditioning, the brake systems, the uh, auxiliary power system, resistors, and they and they assemble that to the to the vehicle. They wire it up. They connect all the wiring and the connectors. They assemble the truck. So they put the axles on the frames and the motors on there and. Then they assemble the truck to the vehicle. And once they do that, they do a com- another water test. They do a complete water test to make sure that the equipment doesn't leak and that the interior of the cars, the doors, et cetera, doesn't leak because, you know, it kind of changes when you get different weights on it. And then they put it through a uh, full static test that takes them a couple of days to do. Um, but they test every subsystem to make sure it's interfacing with each other. So it's all tested all along the way. It is. There's and, there's quite a few tests to. And and you've been to both facilities. I have. I what, which do you like better, <laughs> and why? No, because they're both unique. I mean, it, they're both unique in what they do. Yeah. Sagoon's impressive in, in in the capabilities they have. So it's kind of it's kind of uh, the first time you go in there, it's kind of a wow factor. <laughs> but um, Plattsburgh's very organized as well, and uh, I spent a lot of time up there, uh, particularly in the beginning. And uh, it was it, so. Yeah, I, I liked them both. So tell me what happens when it gets here to Bart. You've got a test track at our Hayward Maintenance Complex that, that was specifically built for the Fleet of the Future. What happens when the, the car gets here at Bart? So there's a ramp at the test track, and they back the car, the truck up, and they basically drive the uh, the vehicle off of the bed of the truck. The truck 
the truck bed has rails on it, so it sits on rails and it's and it's and it's fastened down to it. So we roll it off the off the ramp, we take it into the inspection pit, and then they put on any of the parts that had to come off, like collector paddles and you know cupper head, whatever had to come off to ship it, they put it on, and then they do a nine thousand. We call it a nine thousand one test. It's a static test to, again to make sure everything functions, the lights come on, everything blinks, everything is uh, is working correctly. Our inspectors go over and do a shipping inspection to make sure there was no damage, that everything's on, that everything looks uh, good, make sure the covers are all on, all the equipment. And then Alstom brings it down. Well, actually, our guys, our, our move crew, brings it down to the lower test track, which is powered. And then BART train operators do the do the testing of the 9001. Alstom's Technicians are on board, but our train operators drive the train. So they do a, a 9002 test, which tests the propulsion and it tests the brakes. So you got to get it up to a certain speed, like 80 miles an hour, and then you then you you know hit the brakes and make sure it make sure it stops. You can get up to 80 miles an hour on the test track with with uh, with a, yeah single cars and and a and a small group of cars, not with 10 cars, but with right. uh, with wow. a smaller group. So. They do the brake testing, and then they put uh, a train together of two D cars and three E cars. So the D cars are the cab control cars, and the E cars are just the passenger cars. And then they do a 9004 test, which verifies the automatic train control. So make sure that the, the you know automatic train control is working, and it stops at the pseudo stations on either end of the test track, and it reads the speed codes properly and how opens long? the doors and how long is this test track it's uh two miles wow yeah it's good size test track yeah so this is all good stuff for gearheads let's talk about some of the things that just your regular passengers uh notice about the new cars you know the most obvious thing of course is that they have one more set of doors they have three doors on each side but what are some of the the biggest differences between the new rail cars and the old fleet aside from those doors it's different seating arrangements, so it's open. It has it has the regular commuter seats, and then it has the lounge-style seating. But I think with the new maps, um, where it has a dynamic map. It's a rather customer than, display monitor. Yeah, yeah, it's the customer display monitor, and then, and it's able to put out announcements and and uh, do, do, you know, various uh, messages. Um, the air conditioning also comes from the ceiling rather than up from the floor so you know cold air drops so it it um feels a little cooler in so there so you're working with physics again trying to it, yeah. yes <laughs> that was the idea so how much has technology changed since the uh if rail car technology changed since the early 70s to the cars you're you putting in service now it's it's got to be pretty profound yeah it's that's a good question it is actually it's uh you know like the old cars were were dc motors and these are these are now ac motors so that's a big difference you don't have all the brushes and problems with that direct but, current alternating current correct yeah but the the biggest difference is it's all solid state you know the old the old motor boxes and in semi boxes and and when you open them up, there was all these gears that would turn and and hit a switch and move it. It's now all solid state. You just have a they're called IGBTs, but they're that's the that's the mechanism that runs the power and it you know it, it basically drives the car. You don't have cam operated switches, so 
that's the good thing. The tough part of that is, you know, it's 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 tougher to to diagnose where the problem is. You can't just open it up and see mm-hmm. that there's a, a connector welded mm-hmm. together or something like that. So you have to if there's a failure, you have to take it off. And we have these special test units in the uh, component area where you put it on and then you can test it and verify what the what the problem is. No, I remember uh, in the past you cited some jaw-dropping numbers in terms of the length of the cables in these cars and the number of software changes your team has made as you progressed. Do you remember those stats off the top of your head? Well, you're testing my memory. I I think it was 40 miles of cable or something like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many. It's in the hundreds of how many software changes we've done. So, you know, it's – it. I mean, we continue to do – software changes because we're continuing to try and get the reliability up on these cars. So there's a change going in right now for the uh, train control monitoring system that we're uh, implementing and it and it affects the it affects the maps and you know the passenger inter, inter uh, passenger information system etc. So it's uh it's a constant upgrade. Well, let's be honest, we've had some challenges um Describe why we paused the delivery of the new cars for a time and how your team overcame those challenges. Yeah, we did pause. We had we had the the, the main issue was uh, reliability. We we uh, we were retiring the old fleet with a higher reliability number than a new fleet. It just didn't make sense. So we we didn't have the manuals to 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 make to, to fix the cars. We didn't have the bench test equipment. All of those were handicapping us to be able to actually work on these cars. So we paused. We gave the supplier time to to get their arms around the issues, get their arms around the manuals, get the bench test equipment to us, and um, then we restarted the contract. So we talked about the pause and delivery, and we've had other starts and stops. Uh, Is that a common theme uh, when, you know, transit agencies get new fleets of uh, vehicles or, you know, it's just something that was a particular problem to BART. I would imagine that um, every rail system has uh, a growing pains when they're bringing in a new fleet of rail cars. I do. I do. I've been uh, in pro- I've been doing rail cars for uh, 40-some years, and I don't know a project that hasn't had uh, some kind of an issue. If you look at uh, Boston, they're a couple years late on their fleet um, because they're trying to work out some issues. Wamada's had several uh, new fleets and- and Wamada's Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C., I'm sorry, yes. Um, They were late, and then they had some major issues that they had to iron out. The latest New York one was a bit late. Um, So it's it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, everybody looks at it and says, well, it's just a rail, it's just a train, you know, it's pretty easy, you know, you should be able to do this, but it's got, you know, 40-some microprocessors on it. It's got hundreds of pieces of software on it. Um, it's not just a train. And each one is different. Each requirement is different. So in the United States, we don't we don't have a standard product. You know, if you go to Europe and you go across the, con- you know, the different countries, they're, they're trying to standardize all their products so that, you know, once you build it, you just keep putting it out. It's like mm-hmm. General Motors or Ford, you know. Okay. That first car that they they put together um you know it takes them a while to engineer it but then yeah. everyone's the same and the united states is a little bit different so every, every fleet has its unique set of problems and uh, i think one thing that 
people may not initially appreciate is the fact that they are entrusting their safety to a uh, transit agency, and so safety has got to be paramount, and that, that adds to the uh, complexity of delivering these vehicles. Is that correct? That's correct. Absolutely. We worked hand-in-hand hand with the uh, California Public Utility Commission, CPUC. You know, we started in 2015 working with them on all the documentation um, and, and to, to verify the safety of it. They had to look at everything. Even now, before we, before we put a train in service, we send them the test records and they verify it, and then we put the trains into service. So the original document was probably a five-inch binder, with uh, you know, with paper and and um, records and tests and all the different things that we had to do to uh, put this into uh, into service. And if one is buying an automobile from a um, automobile manufacturer, you're talking about something you're going to use for maybe ten to fifteen years. We're going to use these much longer. And so that that's a factor too, I would imagine. Yes, the, yeah. The subsystems are a thirty-year life. They're designed for a thirty-year life, and the car shells are designed for a forty-year life. So, it's uh, you know, and there's periodic overhauls that you can do on the rehab project. For instance, those cars, the AB cars, we had them for fifty years, but you know, uh, thirty years in, we completely renovate, you know, rehabbed them, um, replaced everything uh-huh. basically except the car shell and the truck frames. Is that something that these cars could, you know, do? Absolutely, yeah. I think what we're looking at is mini overhauls as as we go along to uh, to do that, and that's one of the things that we're that we're uh, putting into the manuals. You know, where you know at at twelve years you do this, at fifteen years you do this, at you know twenty years you do this, and it's all about extending the life as long as possible. Wow, that's interesting. What uh, what do you think about what the third generation of BART cars when these Fleet of the Future ones? become the new legacy cars what's that going to look like yeah they probably won't need rails <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's uh it's it's mind-boggling to see the technology in my brief career uh, you know from from all the cam operated stuff when you know when i started working on it i you know i was i was building propulsion for the c cars back in the early 80s for a company called westinghouse and uh to see the propulsion that's coming out of there predecessors now it's 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 totally it's totally different it it doesn't even look the same you mentioned the supplier and the supplier was originally bombardier which uh, successfully was awarded the contract they were competing against alstom and now alstom has um you know acquired bombardier so alstom is now the supplier has that transition affected the project in any way uh i know alstom is a major player, obviously, in rail vehicles and, and you know, in, in the rail industry at large? It, re- it really hasn't. Um, you know, the project team has stayed the same. I mean, there, there's constant changes on the project team, but for the overall structure, the, con- the project team from Alstom, from Bombardier and then to Alstom has remained the same. They've, you know, they've had people leave for, for various reasons, retirements or other opportunities, and they've had to plug other people in. But uh, for the most part, it's been the same uh, and, team. And also has people here in, in the Bay Area working with us. They do. On a daily they basis. do. That team has remained the same. Um, we had one guy retire, but uh, they brought another guy in um, a couple of years ago. So there's there's a group on the test track. And then they have folks that come in the shops if there's an issue to help our techs troubleshoot it. 
um, our techs do the work, but they kind of advise. That's part of the warranty support. And so, the, speaking of the contract, I understand it's coming in 15% under the projected cost. How did you manage that? In the very beginning, we spent a lot of time with all uh, with Bombardier to look at you know some of their cost drivers, and one of the big ones that they had was you know the original contract was to ship uh, ten cars a month, and they said early on that they wanted to go to sixteen cars a month. So in the beginning, we did a schedule adjustment to to go to sixteen cars a month. Obviously, worked very well for us. They've had some problems and haven't been able to meet that. But when we redid that schedule, it helped on the cost side for us for escalation. There's a clause in the contract that we look at four different indices every year and we pay them whatever the inflation rate is of those indices so that they don't have to try and cost that into their price. It gives everybody an even playing field. And first of all, for, for the prior to COVID, the inflation was very mild. Right. So that helped. But then when we cut a year and some off of the schedule, that cut, you know, that saved us a, over $100 million in escalation. So that was uh, key to us. And that the escalation is based on the schedules, not based on when the cars are delivered. So we we did very well. They ran into problems, and, and uh, it didn't help them as much as they thought it would. But, um, it, you know, that was one of the cost drivers that they requested, and, and, and we did. So we did a change notice in, in 2013 or 14 um, to, to do that. How did you cut the uh, time on the schedule, a year and a half, I think you mentioned? We went from ten car delivery to sixteen car delivery. Okay, that's what did it. Okay. And so, yeah, it got done. It got done quicker. So, you know, they're they're two years behind, but they're really close to what their original schedule was. So that was one thing we did. The second thing we did was we tried to bring in as much work as we could inside uh, to our engineers. There's some specialty engineers that we had to get help from that we just didn't have. We don't have the day to day knowledge of of. Uh, like software, um, some of the SIL4 requirements or things like that. We, you know, you just don't deal with them every day. There was outside folks that we had to bring in to do that. But everything else we tried to bring in because our engineers are motivated to fix the problem and solve it. And sometimes the outside folks aren't as motivated to get it done because then they don't have, you know, they don't have any other work. Sure. So <laughs> I, I'm not saying that everybody does that, but from my experience, if you can do it yourself – you really want to get it done. Well, there are cars, so there our, are cars. our people are really invested in it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and then that's one thing. And then the other thing is, you know, our engineers have a lot of experience. We had folks in there with 40 years experience. So, you know, when we gave them a problem, they, they had seen it before. Mm -hmm. So it got solved quicker, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Well, let's get back to some of the things that these cars improve for riders. They, uh, we mentioned the three doors on each side. The passenger information. Um, the interior is, um, it seems roomier. It seems like there's more room for wheelchairs, for instance. Data shows these cars are more reliable than the legacy fleet has been in recent years that, you know, since we resumed delivery. But what's your take on why that, that has occurred? Why, why, are they, why are they out there and breaking down less often than the old cars that we've retired? Well, we have, part of the contract is there's certain requirements 
uh, reliability milestones that they have to meet. And so that's why we're still doing software changes because although the reliability is improved, they haven't hit the contractual requirements yet. So there's a very big payment associated with that, which is a motivation for them to meet that. And um, that's a continual process. So we're working with them to get to uh, to where we can pay them that because we, you know, we, we want the reliability. When we get to the number, we're glad to pay them. We mm-hmm. just need to we just need to hit that number. Mm-hmm. So the winter of 2022 and 2023 brought the Bay Area some historic bad weather. And we had an unusual number of cars, especially new cars, taken out of service. You know, the, the new cars are more reliable, but we did have these cars taken out of service because of something called wheel flats. Tell me what a wheel flat is. So a wheel flat is if the cars are not stopping in the prescribed distance that they have to stop, they they lock the axles up t- and it and it skids to a to a stop to bring it to a stop. When when uh, metal skids on metal, it creates a little flat spot on the on the round wheel itself, and that's what the flat spots are. So so you know those have to go into the shop. When they get to be, if they're small, it's not a problem. It's it's an annoyance. But if they get to be too large, we have to take them in and we we cut cut them off of the wheel. We cut the wheel round again and send them back out. And then uh, why did we have this issue with so many of the new cars as opposed to the old cars? That's is there a good a difference? question. Yes, there is. That's a great question. The old cars were basically ran, their train motion ran on stopping at three miles per hour per second. With the new contract, we put in that they had to stop in certain distances, and that's really the right way to do it. You want to make sure it stops within that distance. Because it's safer? It's safer. So the only way that Alstom could do that was with the train motion that they put in place. And instead of one or two cars locking up, the whole train locks up. And so there's this timer on there. It's called the BPM timer. And basically, it looks at the speed. And it says, okay, you're over speed, you're over speed, you're over speed. And it gives them like five seconds, and if they don't meet the speed, you know, if they're not coming down to meet the distance, then they lock up all the axles, and we end up getting, you know, whatever cars are in that train, we could get flats on them all. So that's why you, it seems to be more. We're working on some some issues. We found that there was a couple places in the uh, in the system where the speeds were changing rapidly, so we smoothed those out, and we kind of blended it so we could Whenever we get the flats, we look at where they're at and what time they are, and we the engineers go in and they analyze it. And, you know, if we see that one area we got, you know, six trains flattened, then we went in and we would look at those areas and say, oh, yeah, the speed codes, you know, we have charts that we can look at. We can download off the car and see the actual charts that it's seeing, and we see, okay, this one, uh, this one is a problem area. We need to blend this out a little bit and, 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 uh, reduce the speed, you know, a little sooner when it's coming in. Okay, so that's one design change, that that kind of breaking protocol uh, that's different. I imagine that manufacturing cars for BART, because most people know we have wider tracks than the standard railroad, and our cars are unique. What are some of the engineering challenges to design and build a new fleet of cars to run on, on BART? 
on the BART system? Well, you hit a couple of good ones. I mean, obviously, the, the, the wheel gauge is, 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 is one. That's why we do the dynamic testing in our test track. You know, most of the other car, car builders have uh, normal gauge, and car builders have their own test tracks, and they do the testing there. Probably the biggest one, though, is the weight. These, you know, these cars are 65,000 pounds, roughly. Um, an average car of this size would be about 95,000 pounds. Wow. If it was made out of steel and, you know, mm-hmm. and um, our infrastructure just won't won't handle it because these cars were, were, you know, the infrastructure was designed around the original cars. The original cars were 60,000 pounds. These cars are 65,000 pounds. It was a very big effort to get there. Uh, took a lot of a lot of work. They had to actually go in and retrofit some of the systems to take some weight out. It was uh, it was not an easy task to do that. So bet- between getting the and the reason these are heavier, we gave we we gave them a little extra weight because we had stricter crash worthiness uh, requirements on this car than we did on the uh, the Legacy fleet. So you know as you go along, regulations get tighter and tighter and mm-hmm. tighter. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you can go in and remodel an old house, but you couldn't build it to those standards. Right. You'd have to build it to a totally different standard. That's right. We learn as we go along what it takes exactly. to be safe. Exactly. But that's a good point. You're taking a, um, you know, the existing tracks and the, the aerial tracks and all of that, and you're putting a whole new vehicle on it with all these new standards that need to be met. That's correct. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So let's circle back to the beginning. All of the trains in the base schedule are fleet of the future. As someone who has so much invested personally and professionally, how's that accomplishment make you feel? It makes me feel great. I, I rode one in today to come here. <laughs> so I uh, always like getting on them. And, uh, you know, I kind of look out and see what's going on whenever I'm riding them. But, uh, yeah, it's a great feeling, you know, when you're riding down the road and, uh, you point you know, you point them out to your friends or whatever. And All the sweat and tears worth it. Yep. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. Pretty nice feeling. Well, John, thanks for joining us, and thank you for listening to Hidden Tracks Stories from Bart. You can listen to our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and of course at our website, bart.gov/podcasts.